This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover and is available for pre order right now. My guest today, Special Forces Operator Nick Lavery. Nick lost his leg in Afghanistan, came home, rehabbed, stayed in the Army, went back to his ODA, and deployed back to Afghanistan. So now, without further ado, Nick Lavery. Are you still in? Yeah, man, still active duty. I'm with fifth group here at Fort Campbell. No kidding. Alex, I was reading through everything. I'm like, wait a second. Is he still in? Like, I didn't realize that. So I'm like, he must be out by a, a few months at least, but uh, still in getting after it. Yeah, man. Still still going strong. I, I come up on 16 years in just a month or two. So about, you know, about four left. Got it. What are you, uh, what are you doing right now? I actually, I just left the ODA life behind uh, just a few months back. Uh, actually, now about four months back, which was which was a hard transition. Yeah, and you know, you know, you come in, you want to do the team guy thing forever. Yeah, it just it runs its course. So, and I'm now the company operations warrant for one of the companies here in uh, in Fifth Group. Okay, nice man. The warrant officer program with SF has always impressed me. Um, every time that I got to work with uh, SF, well, SF in general, but SF warrant officers in, in particular, um, just the the school that you guys, like we never figured that out in the SEAL teams. We're like, they went to a warrant officer school that was part of Big Navy, and then they came back and we're like, uh, I guess you're <laughs> going to the training department or, you know, maybe you help out in ops. Like we never figured no. it out, but you guys figured it out a while back. And that's a really cool program, it seems like. Yeah, it is, man. And it's, you know, it certainly has its, has, it's has its ups and downs and, um, but it's unique, you know, like the army's got warrant officers in just about every branch, mm-hmm. but in SF it's, it's just wildly different than any other of the branch warrants, which is why we have our own, our own school. So every other warrant in the army will go down to Fort Rucker to go to the warrant officer course, including pilots. For us, we go to Fort Bragg and, you know, we kind of do our own thing just because yeah. it's, it's so unique. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I want to ask you more about that, but since uh, all people are seeing on the screen right now is you know your your face, um, but uh, you know this picture right here on the cover of your book, Objective Secure. I can't try to remember where I first saw this, but I saw this a long time ago, uh, and I forget how I saw it. If someone sent it to me, or if it was like picked up on a. Uh, like I don't know if the army put it out with like public affairs officer on something like army times or something yeah. like that. Is that where a lot of, a lot of that? Yeah, okay. there's a lot of that. Yeah. So for people that don't see, I want to read something from the beginning of your book right here. Um, and then, uh, and then we'll come back to it. Um, cool. Cause I want to find out about your, your path into the military and all that, but here we go. On my second combat deployment to Afghanistan in 2012, I was wounded in action on three separate occasions. The first was just a few weeks after getting into country when I was hit with some shrapnel in the back of my shoulder during a village clearance operation. It was suggested I be medically evacuated out of the country. For medical treatment, I refused. The second was a couple months later when I was shot in the face while extracting our detachment commander from a burning truck following an improvised explosive device-initiated ambush. Once again, medical evacuation from country was suggested, and once again, I refused. With approximately three weeks left in our deployment, I was shot five times, during an insider attack, four times in my right leg and once in my lower left. The medevac bird couldn't land during the ongoing ambush, so I was forced to wait for over an hour to be airlifted out. 
With my femur shattered and my femoral artery severed, I should have died that day. Instead, my injuries ultimately resulted in the amputation of my right leg above the knee. I spent a year at Walter Reed Medical Center undergoing more than 30 surgeries and learning how to live with a prosthetic before returning to my unit, where I was offered a full medical military retirement. I refused. Man. Incredible. Incredible. And we're going to get to that, but I just wanted people to know that before we kick this off. Uh, Path into the military. Like, I know uh, you're talking in the, in the book about wanting to join the Secret Service at, uh, at some point, uh, be that, that protector. But uh, what was your path like growing up? Did you always know you were going to the military? Did you always know you were going to go special operations or military and then go into the Secret Service? Or what was your, what was your plan? Always is certainly a strong word. And I, I played commando as, as a yeah. lot of us kids did. I really started looking at the military more seriously when I got into high school. Mm-hmm really just because I lacked direction, you know, Mm -hmm. other than athletics, I had not much positive anchor in me towards anything. So I strived for strength. I strived to be respected and actually becoming a Marine was going to be the way I was going to do that. And I actually, I skipped school one day and I went downtown Boston. I met with the Marine Corps recruiter who told me, well, first off, stop skipping school, (laughs) get your degree and then come talk to me after that. And we'll get you in. So it gave me kind of a direction and really the only thing that prevented that from happening was I started getting recruited to play football in college. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, 99% guaranteed I would have enlisted likely into yeah. the Marine Corps. Ultimately ended up going to school purely just to play ball. Again, horrible academic, did the bare minimum. Um, and then my sophomore year of college, you know, was 9-11. And, you know, similar to, you know, a lot of the people, service members of, of my era that, you know, were old enough to appreciate the gravity of the situation and, and feeling like they wanted to be part of that response. I I fall into that exact same category. So that really is what reinvigorated my need and my desire to serve. And I really struggled to stay in school at that point because I I was hungry to get in the game. I knew the game was kicking off and I wanted to be in the game. Ultimately listened to some mentors and some family and friends. I stayed in, I grinded out the rest of my degree. And then I looked at options to come in right after that. Nice. What, uh, who in your family did you talk to? Did you have military uh, service in your family that, or did you have friends that you talked to or just kind of figured it out through people that looked at it with a little bit different perspective than you had as a uh, sophomore, junior in, in college? Yeah, I really, I really didn't take the counsel from military personnel. Um, these were just more people I respected that yeah. I knew had, you know, my best interest at heart. So I, I don't come from a real robust military family. You know, my grandfather was the very tail end of World War II. I had an uncle that served in the Navy for like 15 minutes. And like, really, that was it. So I didn't grow up with this real robust, you know, in this military dynamic, which actually made it kind of ironic in a lot of ways where once I made the decision, you know, I told my father, I think he was the first person I told. And I said, hey, dad, I'm I'm going to go in and this is what I'm going to do. And he, he told me, he's like, flat out, he's like, no, you're not, you're not doing that, you know. He basically tried to like send me to my room and just <laughs> and, and ground me. I was 24 years old. You know, I, I was a grown ass man. And I had already made the decision. It's just it's it's ironic because he's of course now you know my biggest fan. And he's all into it. He reads all the books and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Man, that is so wild. Um, so you're in college. When did you decide to uh, 
when did you learn about the SF X-ray program, uh, baby SF program, uh, they used yep. to, used to call it back in the, in the day, uh, which for those listening is a path where you could go, uh, essentially directly into SF if you pass these different, uh, you know, selection and assessments along the way, uh, without having to go to big army first and then work your way into, into SF. Uh, they did it in the early eighties, I think first, and then yep. they did it again, um, after nine 11. Um, yeah. but, uh, when did you find out about the X-ray program or about SF and decide not to go Marine Corps? So at this point, I was extremely confident that I would be best utilized and I really wanted to be within special operations. So, you know, just graduated college. The internet's now a thing, right? It's 2006 timeframe. Like then, as it is today, as you can appreciate, when you think of who the baddest dudes on the planet, the Navy SEALs come to mind really, really fast, right? Which isn't done necessarily by accident and it works out great. So my first goal was to become a seal. I want to be the baddest dude at in, in the mix. So I walked into a recruiter station in Boston that had the Navy, the Marine Corps and the army all in the same building. Mm -hmm. And at this point, recruiting stations, there were like lines out the door still to get in, even though, you know, it was five, six years past nine 11. We're now surging in Afghanistan. We're surging in Iraq. We're very much in the game. The desire to serve was certainly there. I walked in, walked in the Navy station. I said, hey, I want to be a SEAL. He's like, cool, man. Well, we got to get you enlisted into the Navy first, and then you can request to go that route. And I said, all right, Roger that. Thank you. And I left, walked down the hall, had the same conversation with the Marine Corps, got pretty much the exact same answer, walked down the hall, talked to the Army, and I got a different answer. And they introduced me to the 18 X-ray program, my Special Forces Recruit contract option, and although I was enticed by the speed in which it could get me into special operations, yeah. I didn't make the decision. I really didn't know what Green Berets did. You know, I'd seen Rambo and John Wayne, but I, I hadn't I hadn't a clue. Mm. So I went home, you know, I got on the interwebs. I started doing some homework and I was really drawn to unconventional warfare. So I was attracted by the speed in which I could get there. But then I was also attracted to what ODAs and what Green Berets are, are expected to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I read everything I possibly could on, on special operations in general. I was, I was focused on, on seals, but, uh, there wasn't very much written in the early mid eighties, uh, about seals. So, uh, I was reading everything on counterinsurgencies and insurgencies and special operations and everything I could possibly find. Um, and there was a lot more, I think back then in the, uh, late seventies, early eighties, mid eighties on SF than there was on seals at the time. Um, so like Nick Rose book is out. There's a, a book called mm-hmm. right hands Halberstadt. I think I'm going to butcher his name, which was kind of like a, a thick magazine that, uh, that you could go through that had pictures of SF and selection and training and talked about all these guys with Vietnam experience. And, um, it was, I mean, it was just, just awesome. Uh, so I did a lot of, did a lot of reading, but it's amazing how you can walk into a recruiter and they can just give you either bad information or turn you off completely towards something um, it, uh, just, just or just be difficult with you. And you can just open the door and go walk. OK, I'll go check out the Marine Corps. I'll go check out the Army. I'll do it. You know, that's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. But I'm glad the SF X-ray program uh, existed back then um, because. You know, otherwise you have to go into the army, go infantry, go airborne, go ranger, go SF. There was like a path uh, when there wasn't yeah. the baby program or the, the x-ray program. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then for SEAL teams, same thing. It was called the dive fairer program where mm-hmm. it gave you the, the uh, it guaranteed you could try out in boot camp. 
And I was like, that's Roger that. That's what I want right there. Um, but what I didn't know is that everybody got a chance to try out boot camp. They just say, hey, anybody <laughs> wants to try? So they just get you for six years instead of four. Like they just get you that any way they can. But that's just uh, that's just how it goes. So so you go in, you go what boot camp, and then uh, you go to what airborne or how does how, what's your what's the uh, X-ray program pipeline look like? Yeah, it's 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 a little different today than it was you know back then. But you know, come in basic training. You, you go the infantry route when you come in as an 18 x-ray. You, you you go through all the same exact initial entry protocol that an infantryman would. So we go to Fort Benning. We do the infantry style um, basic training in AIT, which is collapsed into one long training iteration. From there, we're right down the street. Also, Fort Benning, Airborne School, knock that out, boom. And then you head to Fort Bragg. At the time, and I believe we still have it, we had an, a preparatory program specifically for 18 x-rays mm-hmm. prior to going into selection. And this was just to give those of us off the street that really didn't have any army experience, just a little bit more land navigation, rucking, not tying, kind of like very simple, basic, like tactical tasks that we probably didn't get in basic training and would need in selection. That at the time was a five month or I'm sorry, five week program that you would do. And you, you'd go down to Camp McCall, you train Monday through Friday. There's a ton of PT, a ton of rucking. Just they'd kick your ass and then teach you some stuff in between. Well, at the end of the first week, they made it clear to us that the upcoming selection class that was going to be starting on Monday was actually short of a handful of slots. Okay. So they asked for volunteers to who wanted to go to selection early. And I was one of them. I was like, yep, I'm ready to go. Like the sooner I can get there, the better. So my my SOPSI, my special operations preparatory course, was condensed to five days, and then I was in selection. At the time, it was it was two weeks long. They've played around with the with the duration of SFAS, Special Forces Assessment and Selection, anywhere from fourteen up to twenty three days, and they kind of play around with that over time. Now it's around twenty twenty one. Mm. I think they realized that the fourteen day model, which is the one I went through. They really took three weeks worth of stuff and yeah. just condensed it into a two week period. Yeah. And they were just breaking, they were just breaking people off. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at kind of the risk reward of driving guys that hot in the paint for that long. And they were just losing out on what probably would be solid candidates. So now it's 20, 21 days. When I went through, it was 14. You know, then you get selected. It's a it's a great moment in time. You know, I'm sure you've been in that exact same position just you know obviously with the with the navy and with the seals and then you go into the special forces qualification course and that at the time that i went through took me about 18 months to get through um now it's much more streamlined you know the training is all relatively exact same but they've just they've mitigated how much white space exists in between the phases of training so guys are moving through much faster Whereas when I went through, sometimes you'd have like a month, six week gap in between training iterations. And I actually learned that a lot of guys were getting dropped from the course during the time that they had off uh-huh. because they were going downtown Fayetteville. They're getting into trouble, you know, getting into a bar fight or like whatever it was. So now it's much more streamlined for me. The, the Q course took a little over a year and a half. And were you in there with guys that had been in the army for four, five, six, seven, eight years? Yeah, it was it was a good. I mean, it was a good mix. Yeah. We had a bunch of X-rays um, okay. back then. The X-ray program, SF Baby program, was massive. Yeah. You know, so my selection class, which most selections are around two hundred fifty to three hundred guys, 
I want to say there was like a hundred of us that were x-rays. Okay. So there was a ton. So we have, we were intermixed and you could usually tell who yeah. was who pretty fast, <laughs> whether that was just by age or the x-rays would come in and what we would make up for with our inexperience was just our physicality. Cause mm-hmm. really all we did for months and months and months and months leading up to selection was train for yeah. selection. Whereas the, the active duty guys, the people that were already service members and, and soldiers, yeah. they were they had to do their job still, most of them anyway, and then they had to train up for selection right. in addition to that. So there was, there was pros and cons, certainly, and once you got into kind of that small group, those team environments that happened during selection, you were able to kind of leverage everyone's you know strengths. Yeah. Did any of those guys who'd been in for six, seven, eight years coming from range regiment or wherever else, uh, look down on you guys? Like Psh, I had to do my time. I, I know how to polish my boots. I know how to do this stuff. You don't even know how to salute correctly. Like, was there any, any of that stuff going on? Not much. I, I don't really remember much of that oh, at cool. all going on in selection. At yeah. that point, people are typically just kind of hyper-focused nice. on, on performing. And then, you know, when you get into team week and you're doing these things as a small group, it's just, hey, like, what are your strengths? What are my gaps? What are our weaknesses? I want to take advantage of whatever I can because I just got to get to the finish line of this thing. Yeah. What was your MOS? When I finished the Q course, I was the 18 Bravo, which are the yeah. weapons and tactics guys. Nice. There you go. That's a, that's what you want right there, huh? <laughs> I asked for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I asked for it. And, and, you know, back then, it's actually still the same now. I just recently confirmed with one of my buddies who's a selection cadre, you, at the once you get selected, you get to request your MOS and you get to request your language. So every Green Beret has to be proficient in a foreign language. Well, your language is associated with what group you'll get assigned to because SF is regionally aligned. So everyone requests their MOS and their language. And the top 10% of the performers in selection will get what they request. And then nice. the rest, it's, hey, we'll, we'll give you what you can if we can, but you know we got to spread the love around to the groups. So I happen to be fall into that category. So I got the language I wanted and then I got the MOS that I wanted. Nice. What was your language? It was Russian. Oh, wow. out of the course. Yeah. No kidding. And do, what, at what point do you do that? Cause I think they've messed around with that too, right? When they do, do the language portion, um, over the last yep. 30 years or so, what, um, what, what, what portion of the course did you do Russian? How long was it? So for me, that was towards the tail end of the Q course. And it was six months of just oh. pure language. At Bragg? And the only thing, I, yeah, at Bragg. The only thing I had following language was Robin Sage, which is like the massive, you know, field problem exercise that you all do at the end of selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, it went a bunch of tactical stuff, six months in the classroom, struggling through Russian, and then into the field to kind of, act like a green beret that you feel like you already are yeah. and then, you know, graduate and head to the teams. Nice. Did any of it trip you up or were you just, did you just charge right through? I didn't have much issues, man. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it was challenging. Actually language was probably the most difficult part mm-hmm. of the Q course for me. Especially um, Russian. Why'd you choose Russian? Because I wanted to go to third group, which was at Fort Bragg. So okay. my language selection was based off of the unit I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to go to third group because they all they did was Afghanistan. Mm. Um, even though they've, they've also played around with what, what groups has different AOs at different times. You know, mm-hmm. so when Afghanistan kicked off and Iraq was going both fall within CENTCOM, it's, it was just too much for fifth group, which owns CENTCOM to manage. You have two full-blown conflicts. So they, they kind of restructured who was doing what and they gave thir- they gave afghanistan to third group i want to go to afghanistan third group was only going there that's why i chose russian so i could go there wow yeah russian seems like a difficult one 
Um, especially with no back, you didn't have a background. Did you have a background right. in any language? <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it was brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. Oh man. When you left there, did you feel like you left with a, did they have the numbers attached to it? Like they do at DLI, like a two, two plus two, however yeah. they, they do that. How'd you, how'd you do, or do you have to get a minimum something to graduate and move yeah. on with the language? Yeah, you need a minimum of a one plus. Um, and we actually moved when I was in the course to an oral proficiency type exam mm -hmm. as opposed to one that you would do on like a computer. Yeah. So it's really just a conversation you have with someone out, you know, Monterey or wherever they are. Mm -hmm. Um, I got I got the minimum, which I was happy to take. Yeah. And then as soon as I got to my unit, I got the third group. And as soon as I get there, they're like, Cool, you speak Russian. Awesome. Well, there's not a lot of that going on right now. We need you to go learn Dari. <laughs> There so I, I literally turned around and went straight back to language school so I could learn Dari. <laughs> At Bragg too? At Bragg, yeah. Okay, okay. Oh, man, that is that is wild. How about Robin Sage? What was, uh, was it what you were expecting? Uh, did you read about it ahead of time? You get the pass down uh, from guys who have done it before. Was it what you were expecting? And, uh, and what was that like? Yeah, it, it was what I expected. And at that point, you know, you've made some relationships, you got some connections, and you're able to G2 a little bit of stuff. So I, and I had I knew what we were going into, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be a week, a week and a half of, you know, isolation planning, and then, you know, two or so weeks in the field going through this massive scenario. The coolest part about about Robin Sage for me was this was the first time that you actually have SFMOSs that are trained in their mm -hmm. skill sets. That are working alongside you. Yeah. Up until that point, when you're doing small unit tactics or survival evasion stuff or, or any of these other things you go through, you're all the same level of untrained with SF MOSs. Yeah. You're all just students or candidates or or whatever. You get to Sage, and now you have actual medics that know actual medicine. You've got combo guys that actually know how to use radios and, and whatnot. Right. You've got demo guys that can actually do that stuff. So that was really cool. And I remember we were doing our infill, which is notoriously horrible. The infill for Robin Sage okay. is just has a reputation for being just <laughs> absolutely miserable. Everyone's carrying 120 pounds and you're jumping in and then you're walking 8 million miles. It's terrible. <laughs> we're humping through, you know, the hills of North Carolina somewhere. And I began cramping up. And uh, sure enough, an actual medic shows up. And this was the first time that I actually had that experience and realized like, oh, wow, these guys around me actually know how to do some stuff. And yeah. it was it was cool. So it was, you know, it's that first glimpse of what it's like to work on an ODA. Mm -hmm. You do realize very, very quickly once you get to a real team that you really don't know much. Yeah. But going through it in stage was like, oh, man, you know what? I'm actually kind of digging this. This yeah. is actually pretty cool. Yeah, and no, I love that. Uh, I mean, it's so important to have some a common baseline, a touch point with people. Like you, people, you, somebody went through in 1983. Like you've both done Robin Sage. You've both done that Q course. Like same thing with yeah. me. I've that Hell Week and Buds in common with somebody went, went through in 1972, in 1987. Um, and I have that that touch point with them. So we share that in common, which I think is uh, extremely important. Um, so then you get to your team, and what's it like going in there the the first day? And what's that? Uh, what's that? Do you call it a workup before you deploy? So my my timing was a little odd because I, the time I got there, I got assigned to the battalion, I got assigned to in the company. Well, they were all forward in Afghanistan, and they only had maybe four or five weeks left, and they were all coming back off their rotation. So the leadership decided not to send me forward to keep me back and put me in language school, and I would just reset with the next with yeah. the next pump. But there was a team that deployed off cycle from the rest of the company that I was assigned to. And it was a unique team. It was a specialized type team. 
Um, and ultimately that's the one I went to. So my introduction to the team life, similar to all of us is you realize you're at the bottom of an entire new mountain that you need to climb, right? You graduate, you get that little green hat on your head. You feel like the ultimate badass. And then you show up on day one and you're like, Oh, wow. I don't know. Like anything. I got like a whole <laughs> lot of work still to do. Uh, that's when you like really begin to learn your job. Um, my team I went to was comprised of all really senior dudes who had, who had been around, who had seen quite a bit of stuff and done quite a bit of stuff. So I was still the cherry is still the, you know, the nug new guy, but I was surrounded by a lot of senior guys that just began dumping their, you know, wisdom into me. And it's like drinking out of a fire hose, man. But yeah. they, they they set me off on, on a really great path. Yeah. And what does that pre-deployment uh, training cycle look like for you? Are you guys training mostly on brag? Are you flying around the country doing things in preparation to go to Afghanistan? And what's that look like? Yeah. Most of what we did because of the uniqueness of the team was on brag. We were in D.C. quite a bit. Uh, we were in Tampa a little bit. And, you know, we then we went down to uh, Fort Bliss for a PMT train up, and then we were out the door in, over in Afghanistan. And that's your first uh, first deployment? And what is what year is this now? January of 2011. Okay. Okay. So how many do you do, you do, before, uh, do you, before you get uh, your three um, engagements where you're wounded? Is this, is this part of that, or do you stay there for that long, or do you come back and do another another one? Yeah, so I I go over I go over the first time I do nine months uh, I nine come months. back. Yep, Dang. I do nine months. Is that typical for you guys at the time, or is that long? That was that was one of the longer ones. Okay. We were usually doing between six and nine, or oh. six or nine. So that okay. was that was one of the longer ones. Came back from that at the end of the 2011. You know, went into individual train up, and then my leadership had swapped out, and they wanted to put me onto a more of a direct action focused ODA. Mm which I wanted to do and everyone was cool with it. The team I was going to was currently forward in another location doing some other stuff and they were also on their way back. So I was again in this limbo. Huh. Well, there was a tasking that came over from JSOC that had a bunch of different people from a bunch of different organizations that were all going into Afghanistan to do some stuff. And they were looking for an extra body. And that came over to third group just because we were all at Fort Bragg. So I ended up short, quick little pump, maybe six. Came back from that, went to the new team, then went back in Afghanistan in 2012, and that was the deployment where things got a little a little gnarly for me, a little dicey. What 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 lessons did you bring from that uh, first deployment back? Like uh, that's first time in Afghanistan, you're the this, uh, the new guy deployment. What uh, what do you what do you take from that deployment um, going forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot, uh, a lot. I'd say the one thing that jumps out is, you know, you come into this line of work, as you know, <clears throat> most of us want to do the cool guy stuff, right? We want to jump out of planes. We want to kick down doors. We want to shoot bad guys in the face. We want to blow things up and drive fast. Things like that. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to, to that over that first nine months, but I was also exposed to an entire plethora of other types of, of operations and activities that, I didn't even know about, I didn't even know Green Berets would do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'd be getting, you know, we'd load up into Chinooks to do, you know, half type ops. We'd load up into gun trucks with machine gun barrels sticking out all over the place like Porcupine. And then also I'd get into a soft skin Corolla to drive through downtown Kandahar and like pick somebody up. So mm -hmm. 
I was exposed to a lot across the spectrum of what ODAs are expected and able to do. Yeah. So it really opened up my eyes at a, at a really like the earliest point in my career yeah. where a lot of us aren't exposed to that kind of stuff until a little further down the line, yeah. especially at that time when we were just doing combat all the time. I was exposed to that stuff really, really early. So it just gave me a greater appreciation for, for what a Green Beret is capable of. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, lot going on. That's a, you know, height of a lot of things going on all around <clears> the world. But uh, so the second one, so you're, at, you're over there, you're more of a direct action element now in 2012. Um, what's that, uh, that first time? What do you, how long is it before you, you get that, the wound, the, the shrapnel in the back? Like how, how long are you in country doing ops before that happens? Three weeks. Oh, geez. Oh man. You bookended your deployment. Um, Oh yeah. Oh man. Literally. Jeez. It was quick. ah, What, what, uh, what happened with that first one? The, the shrapnel in the back. Yeah, man. Um, we were on the way to an objective. We got ambushed. Um, we dismount, we fire maneuver into this village and myself, real small element. Me, I think I only had two team guys with me and then a handful of our partners. Yeah. And we're in now like urban combat. Now, this isn't like Iraq, Baghdad urban, but it's urban. Multi-story structures, alleys, hallways, doors, like all the threats that make urban combat really hard. That's what we were into. And we're fighting our way towards this compound that's got a two-story structure that's unloading onto the convoy with a dishka. So RPG, Dishka, PKM, P- dudes are dropping HME grenades and other frags out of windows. Like this was a full-blown like urban scenario. And we get to our breach point of this compound. We're about to go and something explodes behind me. And boom, it's like I got hit in the back with like a baseball bat. And I look, you know, I look back and there's a, like a lemon-sized hole in my shoulder. And it really wasn't all that big of a deal you know my teammate got to me it was more of a shock for me than anything i didn't feel any pain like adrenaline's pumping like i'm good to go i just see this hole in my body that wasn't there a minute ago and i'm like oh shit this uh this is happening teammate comes over gauze pressure dressing i'm totally good to go and my team sergeant was with this element with me and i'm like hey boss i'm good let's go let's let's breach let's 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 just keep working and he's like you know what dude (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. We're gonna we're gonna get back to the trucks. We're gonna reconsolidate and take another look at like what we're doing here. So this was the first time any one of us was what I'll say significantly wounded. It certainly would not be the last, but we were operating outside of our headlights in that exact moment. We we bit off way more than we probably should have. I completely reckless. and the rest of our leadership probably needed to kind of make sure we were being a little bit more tempered with what we were doing yeah. in the environment we were within. And you know what, man, the, the, the blast in a dish got of a two-story structure in this compound. If we had actually breached the way that I wanted to and the way we had intended to, you know, who's the, who's the noble was on the other side of that in that courtyard. So, yeah. you know, I'm just grateful that this happened to me particularly, but early on in the trip, because it kind of changed the overall mission planning dynamic and the tactics that we maintained throughout the rest of the trip. Jeez. And what was it that, um, that, uh, that got you? What was that? Somebody drop a grenade or what was that? The shrapnel from grenade shrapnel. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And for those, for those listening, it's, uh, you know, kind of the mantra is self-aid, buddy aid, medic aid. We call it Corman aid. Um, so you're supposed to take care of yourself first, but it seems like that is a spot where you, 
very a little difficult to get to to stuff with gauze or whatever Tough. you're gonna gonna do. Um, that, uh, oh man, that is that is wild. So you get back in the trucks, reconsolidate, you go back to base, and then someone takes a closer yep. look at it, or what's uh, what's going yeah, on there? So we ended up we ended up aboarding the mission, um, and we we head we head back to the house. Our medic takes a closer look at it. He's like, "Yeah, you know what, dude? I think we need to get you in front of a dock." I throw a, just a childish temper tantrum because <laughs> I don't want to leave yeah. at all. Uh, you know, leadership says, nope, like we're going to get you in front of a dock. So medevac comes out, picks me up, you know, flies me out, gets me in front of a doctor, takes a look at it. You know, the treatment for something like this is quite basic. Mm. You know, they can't sew it shut because it can leave an open cavity that would be, could be prone to infection. So the way they treat it is they basically just pack this wound with this antiseptic gauze like mm. three or four times a day just to let it gradually heal from the inside out. Wow. Um, so after being at this, at this location that had one of our higher headquarters for about a week, I was like, okay, uh, this is pretty simple. I can, I can handle this myself. My, my teammates, my medic can certainly handle this themselves. Wasn't a big deal. So I ended up getting back with the boys just after about a week of being away and then, you know, right back to work. So is the doc, I mean, so they, they recommend that you leave country though. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. The story in which how I got back after a week is funny. I'll tell it fast. So I get originally flown out to where our AOB headquarters was located. So that's, that's our company level command, company commander, company sergeant major, company operations warrant, and a host of support personnel. Uh-huh. I get flown out there. Well, the only flights rotary wing that could get me back to where we were working were all generated out of Bagram, right? Out of Bath. Mm-hmm. So I knew I needed to get to Bagram to get on a helicopter to get back to my guys. After maybe four or five days of being where AOB was, I lose my mind and I'm like, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here. So I grab one of my buddies and I have him take me down to the tarmac and I go from one C-130 to a next asking who's flying to Bagram. Until I find one, the crew's like, well, yeah, we're taking off right now. I'm like, can I come with you? They're like, sure. So I just jump on the plane with all my gear and take off. I don't tell anybody that I'm leaving. Oh, wow. I fly across the country to Bagram, land there, make my way over to Camp Montron, which is one of the SF compounds we had on Bagram. I walk into the jock, and the now I'm at the SODIF level command team, so my yeah. battalion command team. And I'm like, hey, I need a ride back to Jalrez, which is the district we were working out of. And there was a lot of confusion at first as to why I was there. <laughs> and a company sergeant major comes in and he's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, here we go. And then the phone rings as I'm trying to come up with some less subordinate <laughs> reason for why I'm there. And mm-hmm. I've disobeyed a direct order. The phone rings. He picks it up and he's like, oh, yeah, no, he's standing right in front of me right now. And I'm like, this is definitely about me. Dude, I don't know if I'm going to get court-martialed or like what's going to happen. I just know that I violated a direct order. And it was my company sergeant major on the phone calling from the place I had just left. Yeah, I get on the phone with him. He has some choice words for me for about five minutes, mm-hmm. um, understandably so. But then at the end of that, he's like, listen, man, uh, I, I get it. All right. Like, I get it. You know, your heart's in the right place. Just, you know, don't ever do that again. But I, I, I understand why you're doing what you're doing. So I'm like, okay, cool. Crisis averted. And I'm not kidding, Jack. This was my first time ever being in a jock. Okay. Right? Ever being in a jock with, with the screens yeah. and with like all the stuff. And like, I had never seen the inside of one before. <laughs> like I work on the other side of, of what these guys <laughs> so are, awesome. you know, seeing. Yeah. 
this was my first time in this jock. It's got the stadium seating. It's got yeah. all the stuff. It's got all the assets <laughs> and all the personnel and whatnot. Yeah. Well, in that moment, the red light goes off. We've got troops in contact, like essential personnel only. People are coming. People are going. People are spinning up phones and comms and mics and computer screens and whatnot. Well, it's my ODA that's now in a gunfight. And I'm watching this on a television screen. And my team sergeant takes a round through the abdomen. And I'm witnessing this from the sidelines. It just drove me insane. Yeah. Uh, and again, it was really childish, my response to that. I was throwing chairs and you know acting like a, like a kid. But my SODIF commander um, was understanding of that. So despite what the doctor had wanted and despite the concerns for me, uh, and with infection, yeah. they put me back in a helicopter that night, and I was back. I was back with the boys. That's amazing. The, the infection is really what you're worried about at this at this point, and that's uh, that, that, I think it's very rare for a uh, company commander or a uh, battalion commander or the, that command team to be like to take that risk with one of their guys that, especially in Afghanistan, where it could really get infected. That's pretty wild that they that they did that. That's yeah. Yeah. Did yeah, you talk cool. to him later about it? Did you be like, why did you guys allow me to stay? I don't think I've ever asked them that. <laughs> um you know the, the 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 story of me quote hijacking a C one thirty because of course that the story's been embellished like times a million <laughs> that still comes up every now and then. That's like hey awesome. remember that time Nick stole a plane and flew to Bagram? I'm like that's yeah. not what happened, but okay, fine. I guess it sounds cooler when you say it like that. <laughs> it was one of those things, man. I mean, everyone understood. And yeah. it's, a, it's a unique time period. And I got so, like soldiers of today, like especially the young ones that hear this story, like do not do not operate this way. You know, this is <laughs> when you're in combat, like like actual combat, it's, it's a different world. And there's a little bit more understanding with some what now would probably be erratic and unprofessional decision making. There's a little bit more of a grace period a little bit more understanding when you're in that kind of environment that's that that's that chaotic yeah. and you're that eager to get back to where you know you need to be. Right. Oh man. What um how long are you then on the ground before you have your your next wound? Um uh, shot in the face. How long are you operating before that happens? Well, well six it was like mid to end of September. November twenty seventh. I know the date exactly. Yeah. Um, what happened on that? Yeah, about six weeks apart. Yeah. yeah. So that one, man, we were on our way back from an op. Uh, we were mounted driving. Lead vehicle hits a hits a massive ID, and we had hit a bunch of IDs prior. Nothing to this scale. I mean, this thing was estimated three four hundred pounds of HME, and it just picked up a, a Mat V and just chucked it off the side of the road. I was operating out of the trail vehicle, out of a hatch, and it, so it literally happened right in front of me. You know, about three, four hundred meters in front of me, but right in front of me. And I can I'm watching this truck that's just being launched off the side of the road. And one of my teammates, who is the turret gunner, is flying through the air like a lawn dot. And my first thought is everyone's dead. There's there's no way anyone is surviving this this explosion. And um I end up jumping out of this hatch and I take off on foot towards the wreckage, which you know, isn't what I'm supposed to be doing in that scenario. Like we have mounted react to IED SOPs and, you know, jumping out of a moving vehicle and taking off on foot is definitely not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I let my emotions get the best of me. Uh, something that, you know, I, I can, I can look back and with, in retrospect and, 
and analyze and, and use as a teaching point of the, the importance of training and SOPs and like why we do things a certain way. This is this is not this is what this is an example of really what not to do. This is initiation of a complex ambush. So we drive this IED goes off, boom, we're in an L-shaped ambush, PKM, RPG, all launching, full-blown gunfight. I'm in a dead sprint towards the vehicle. It landed off the side of the road in this apple orchard, slide down the depression. I trip and fall. And I look back and I had tripped over my teammate who was, who was the turret gun, fellow 18 Bravo. He and I actually went to the Q course together and I'm in shock that this dude's alive and he's very much alive. His leg snapped in half right below his knee. He's, you know, bleeding from the mouth. He's dealing with some initial blast injury, but he's relatively okay. Mm. All things considered. So I'm doing kind of a quick sweep on him. I start hearing a, a different sound of, of bullets hitting the truck and there's three dismounts that are now moving towards the vehicle, just kind of blasting away at it. They hadn't seen me yet. Uh, so I had to make a really hard decision to leave my friend who was there, scared, crying, uh, asking me for help. And I'm like, dude, I got to go. First time I've been put in that position, really awkward, difficult position to be in. Uh, leave him, you know, smoke two out of the three of these dudes. The third one, you can't make this up. This could maybe be something in one of your future books. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking notes. Yeah, stop taking notes. This third guy takes off running kind of on an angle away from me, and he's firing his AK over his shoulder as he's running away. So imagine him <laughs> shooting with his thumb on the trigger, and he's just spraying, and he's moving away kind of on an oblique. Yeah. I'm maneuvering through this apple orchard trying to get a shot. And next thing you know, I'm standing up at the sky. I didn't, I didn't know I had been shot. I thought I had hit a tree branch mm -hmm. that had just knocked me over. And I pop up and I look around, I check, you know, fingers and toes, everything's there. I'm like, okay, I'm, I don't know what that was, but I'm fine. I go to re-engage this dude. And then I realize that the vehicle with our guys in it is now on fire. And I hadn't checked it. I don't know who's in it. I've only seen my boy, Nate. I don't know what's going on with the rest of the guys. So I have, to, I have to leave this guy, this enemy fighter, who I really wanted to kill because I decided to prioritize checking the status of the vehicle. Thankfully, the the passenger door had been blown off the hinges uh, because those things weigh like 800 pounds. So the truck had landed on its driver's side door. So the passenger door was facing the sky, mm. and that was the only access point that I could see. It basically was just a pile of metal at this point with flames coming out of the back. So I climb up the truck, I look in, and our detachment commander, our team leader, is in the cab. And he's actually on the radio trying to relay a sit rep to Haya, which says a lot about that guy. It says a lot about training, but it also says a lot about him as an individual. He's busted up bad. One of his legs is hanging on by a thread just below the knee. The other one's mangled. He's got a massive arterial bleed coming out of his armpit. I mean, this dude's dying literally laying there dying in a pile of rubble that's on fire and he's trying to he's still doing his job i mean watching this happen live was like damn dude you you are a warrior and it's one of those moments where you know we're still receiving kind of inaccurate enemy fire and the rounds from the inside the vehicle now all start cooking off because of the heat so I'm looking inside this vehicle. It's like looking inside of a bag of popcorn. We're taking enemy fire. The the, the fire is raging. I'm like, okay, um, this is one of those situations where I'm quite confident neither one of us are making it out of this. Uh, but I cannot leave this guy. I, I cannot leave this guy. 
So I climb in the cab. I kind of shimmy him up towards my entry point. I jump out, um, basically just deadlift this dude up and out. And at this point, some of my uh, teammates and some of the Patna Force guys had showed up. So I just chuck him off the side of the truck. They grab him, take him away. The six guys in that vehicle total, amazingly enough, all of them lived. Um, and it wasn't until hours later when we set up a CCP and we were treating and waiting for a medevac bird to come in. One of my teammates had come over to me and he slid one of our teammates and he's, you know, been clipped. Jeez. Um, man, you're, uh, is it your company? You said your company commander in that, uh, that you pulled out. What, uh, other guys working it's on our team leader, team leader, a team leader. Yeah. Wow, man, you have it get an 18 Delta on him right away. What are they doing? Like, what are they prioritizing there? Arterial bleed, and then they're putting tourniquets on. Or do you have multiple guys doing that at the same time? Or what does that look like? Yep. So, yeah, tourniquets to the legs was, was I believe, the first intervention that was put on. Um, and they were able to get a kind of a ready-made junctional tourniquet to the upper arm that was able to pinch that off as well. Uh he that he's a guy that that without question should be dead. Um, he's a below the knee amputee right now. He stayed he's out and he retired, but he stayed in for quite a while. He actually took over command of selection wow. out of Fort Bragg for a while. Um, he was banged up pretty good. The guy I was working on, his actual his eyeball had come out of his head. So I was actually in the process of putting his eye back in his face and gauzing that up when my teammate came over to me. And so he's holding me. I'm putting John's eye back in his head. And we got the other six dudes. And really, our senior medic, he was triaging most of the time. You know, mm-hmm. when you've got like a mass cal scenario, the medics usually, I should say, um, are really just going from one patient to the next, monitoring the status of what's going on and, and giving direction as to what the caregiver needs to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, if they get too sucked in on one patient, then they lose control of the overall medical scenario. So mm-hmm. those of us non-medics, were the ones that were actually treating most of these guys. Jeez. So he comes up up to you and lets you know that uh, you've got a little something going on. Um, and what is that like? Like what what uh, what do you do? Do you keep working on your guy? What do you what do you do for yours? Yeah. So I I finished working on on John. Um, my teammate Adams holding some gauze on my face. I'm not really sure what he's what he's doing. He's yeah. just like, dude, you're bleeding profusely. I'm like, yeah, okay. And again, in my head. It's like, yeah, I ran into a tree. It's like, it's fine. It's a scratch. Like, no big deal. I feel like you're overreacting right now, but <laughs> I'm focused on my work and I'll deal with you as you're like massaging my face for some reason. I'll deal with you later. Yeah. And so once the once the guys were all packaged up and set for medevac, you know, we cleared a CCP, we get the gunfight under control, birds are coming in, was when I just kind of took over control of my own pressure. Yeah. And I still wasn't entirely sure that I had been shot. That got confirmed hours and hours and hours later. Once we got the situation under control, we got back to the house. Meta took a look at me. He's like, yep, let's get you in front of a doc as well. I was then medevaced out. And then once I got in front of a surgeon, he's like, oh, no, this is definitely a gunshot wound. And you are one lucky SOB um, because even just a millimeter over and you'd likely not be here or half your face would be gone. Wow. So what did it hit? And it's, it's the guy shooting with his thumb over his shoulder, running away. Yeah. One of those rounds yeah. hits. And if it goes just a little bit the other way, like as people, well, I don't know if people know or not. People, a lot of people know, uh, you never know what a bullet's going to do when it hits something. It could go this way, that way, up, down. You never know. And it just, it hits a millimeter the other way and it goes through your brain and you're friggin' done. Done. 
It just, it just, I mean, it literally just grazed wow. the side. And, you know, it looked ugly and it did clip a little artery. So it bled a lot. I hadn't seen it till I got to the hospital. And, you know, they're all wanting to work on me and they're like, hey, you know, take your stuff off and get over here. We're going to take a look at this. And I, I had to take a piss. And I was like, hey, <laughs> give me a minute. That was the first time that I had looked at it. I'm in the bathroom and I look at my face and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is kind of ugly. I, I owe Elliot, our senior medic, an apology because he, <laughs> he made the right call. I was like totally in his face when he's like, dude, we're medevacking you. And I'm like, again, childish temper tantrum. Once I saw it, I was like, yeah, this is probably probably the right move because they actually had to cauterize it to get that artery closed wow. and then, and then stitch it up. So we don't, we don't have that kind of equipment on hand out at these outstations. So, I mean, as per usual, my teammates looking out for us, he made the right call. Man. Is that, are uh, you back at the same facility you were at for your, your first wound? And are they like this guy again? No. So this time they sent us straight to Bagram. Okay. Um, so it was a, it was, it was a different, it was a different med crew. You know? <laughs> so they're not aware you have also a hole in your shoulder from a little while earlier. Um, or maybe they are, but, uh, man, that is wild. So what do they do? They, what do they sew you up, make sure it's clean, um, recommend probably that you leave country again because of infection. And then you say <laughs> no. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty much how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much how it happened. Oh, how long do they keep you uh, this time before you get back to your the guys? Like, I mean, three, four days. Yeah. Um, and really, I wanted to stay uh, long enough to see my teammates that were there that were really banged up. Yeah. I wanted to stay with them until they got loaded up to fly to Germany, yeah. and then you know from there on to Walter Reed, and that took like three, four days before they could get packaged. So once they left. Then I jumped on a on a on a rotary wing bird, and then I flew back out to the guys. Yeah, you know? jeez, and uh, man, that is why. What so this is your team leader that's going to to Germany on to Walter Reed and a couple other guys. So what do they do? Does somebody pop up to that position, or do they bring somebody else in, or somebody like how do, how does that work out? Yeah, I mean, ultimately both is the answer. So you know, we had a warrant officer on the team. We talked earlier about you know the unique aspects of being a special force warrant officer. So he he assumed command of the ODA in the interim. Mm. And this was November, late November, November 27th. So this was like the end of the fighting season. The snow's on the way and the tactical pause yeah. uh, until the season kicks back off again, usually like late February. So our warrant officer assumed command of the ODA uh, for a few weeks, maybe a month. And then they replaced our previous captain, with a new one, with a new team leader. Okay. So we got him, uh, Captain Andrew Peterson Keel. He came in, I want to say it was maybe like late December timeframe. All right, today I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Started by my buddy, Nick Norris from the SEAL teams, who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest, liquid packs. Because we all want to feel our best, we dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work, our personal lives, and have a great workout every single day. But the reality is, 
Very few of us do that. That's why Protect was started. And you can grab a convenient pack right here. This is energy. So this has been boosting me through my latest novel. And look at that. It's a liquid pack right there. You just, bam, add it to a glass, add a little water, and you are good to go. So hydration, love the hydration, and the immunity, and the clarity, which I'm going to take as soon as this podcast is over and I get back to writing. So all of that plus the rest. How important is that rest? Right here, take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink for the energy. Try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50 protect right there. And right now you can get 25% off. Go to protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com slash danger close for 25% off. Go check them out. Okay. Got it. So he shows up and things, uh, things have settled down a little bit. Cause before I went to Afghanistan, I, it was earlier on. I mean, it seemed like late at the time, 2003, but ended up looking back you know, not as late as we thought it was going to be. Um, and I went through that bear, uh, went over the mountain book and I start highlighting all the dates and I'm like, okay, uh, yeah, here's an April, here's a June, here's an August, boom, boom, boom. But I kept hearing about this fighting season and, uh, but there was a lot in the winter. And so for those listening, um, there were a couple books out there that kind of like an after action of the Soviet experience in Afghanistan from 79 to 89. And, um, yeah, I could go through, read some of those engagements and read some lessons learned and where they went down and all that sort of a thing. Um, one was kind of like what the Russians did. The other side's what the, the Muj did. Um, and, uh, but I went through those dates and there was a lot in the winter. I remember that standing out to me when I went back through that and looked at all the highlighting. I'm like, okay, here's a December, here's a February, here's here's January. Like there was fighting in the off season. Um, yeah. And uh, so, what are, what are you guys doing then uh, from uh, December, January, February into into March? Yeah, and and really, it it really depends on where you are. That's kind of one of the amazing things and really beautiful things of, of Afghanistan is. You got the desert and you got the mountains. And it, I mean, aside from it being war torn, there was a time when Afghanistan was absolutely beautiful yeah. until it just was decimated. So, depending on where you are, would kind of determine when exactly that season would start or end, or if mm-hmm. anything would time out whatsoever. For us, where we were in Jalrez and Wardak, our base camp sat at like 78, 7,900 feet. Mm. So, come, you know, mid December, you're talking like feet of snow is just being dumped on you. And it's impossible to go anywhere. No mm-hmm. birds can come in and land. The vehicles can't move. So it ends up being for us at that time was, you know, a good seven ish or so week, just kind of time out. And, okay. you know, you're lifting weights and you're throwing down protein shakes and, you know, you're working on kind of some Intel stuff and mm-hmm. some other, the quieter, softer aspects of what we do. But the, you know, the kinetic stuff was put on pause that kicked off again for us, you know, kind of mid February ish timeframe was when we were kind of game game back on. Okay. And we were leaving, I want to say the first week of April timeframe. Okay. It's a six month pump. You know, we came in in September, we were going to leave sometime around April and on March 11th, this is now 2013, same deployment. This is when I was wounded for the third time. Uh, this was an insider attack. So, you know, we're getting ready to go on a joint operation. We had our dedicated 
commando partner force that lived with us. But then we also had on this day, some Afghan national army guys, some Afghan national police guys, some Afghan local police guys. So this conglomerate of, of dudes, some of which we knew, some of which we had worked with, some not mm. poses a real dangerous scenario for us. And immediately following our mission brief, a dude jumped up on the back of a, of a Ford Ranger pickup truck that had a mounted PKM. And he opened fire into the group from about 25, 30 feet away. An ideal target of opportunity. Where, you know, we're all lumped together. It's like a perfect storm. This was a coordinated attack. So this was the initiation. And he cracks off at the same time, about 20, 25 guys that we didn't know basically had us surrounded, all began lobbing, you know, machine gun and rockets into our compound. 12 U.S. casualties uh, that day, including three killed, one of which was our new captain, uh, Andrew Peterson Keel. So the guy that replaced the outgoing team leader, he was killed. Our infantry squad squad leader, uh, he was killed. We had about nine or 10 infantry guys that were there for as uplift for us. So Rex Shad, Staff Sergeant Rex Shad was killed, and then also our, our working dog was killed. And then another nine of us Americans were wounded, and then I want to say it was like 10 or 11 Afghans were killed or wounded as well. So it was considered the most catastrophic insider attack that we actually had had on record. Um, and then, you know, for me, most of that damage was to my right leg from oral artery cut, femur shattered. Uh, I treated myself, uh, at least initially, and that's a, you could appreciate this, man. And maybe not this like specific incident, but certainly the testament that, you know, you train aggressively on a lot of different things, but when you do it for real, oftentimes more often than not, it's, it's different, right? It's just, it's just different the way that it's the way that it plays out in real life, whether that's CQB or defensive driving or offensive mm -hmm. driving, you, you train, you train, you train. And then when it's like game time, it's like, eh, it's like a little different. Yeah. I can certainly tell you that when you're doing an internal pressure dressing on yourself, uh, that's wildly different in real life than it is in training. But that's ultimately what what I ended up doing. I mean, amazing. I feel like I need to read this for people because it is, uh, I mean, in absolutely incredible story. Um, oh, I mean, and you're alive here today. Um, yeah, brother. Is, I mean... Incredible. Hey. March 11th, 2013. Immediately after the impact to my right leg, I knew I had been hit. A 7.62 round from a truck-mounted PKM at a range of approximately 20 feet feels like a sledgehammer. I didn't have time to immediately examine the wound and determine the severity. I had more pressing work to do. Get you and this soldier behind cover and eliminate the threat. This is what training does. It conditions your mind and body to respond accordingly. My training kicked in, and I dragged myself and Private Smith approximately seven feet behind an armored truck. I located a rifle lying on the ground next to me, put it into action, and took a few horribly placed shots. One of my teammates eliminated the immediate threat, and although we were still receiving fire from outside the camp, I was in no position to address that problem. Check the status of Smith. Do as, I do as I tell myself. A quick head-to-toe sweep, no massive bleeding. I yell his name. He responds, airway looks good. I ask him if he's okay. He says, yes, respiration seems fine. Smith is in shock, but other than that, he's all right. Check your wounds. I rip what's remaining of my pants open and expose my right leg. It doesn't look like a leg, more like something that just came out of a meat grinder. Apply a tourniquet. I rip one off my kit and slap it around what's left of my leg as high as possible in my groin. Secure it, tighten it as hard as possible, 
twist the windlass, and lock it in. I check for bleeding. I'm still bleeding out. It is here that I notice a river of blood flowing from me to the location where I had been struck, a stream of dark red liquid, now also pooling beneath me. Femoral artery is cut. You might have 10 minutes to live. Keep working. I grab a second tourniquet off my pistol belt. Same application process, just below the first one. I tighten it down so hard I almost pass out after locking it in the windlass. Check for bleeding. I still see blood trickling from my thigh, although it seems to be slowing down. Either the tourniquets are working, or I'm almost out of blood to bleed. A teammate arrives by my side. I tell him the situation, but he is able to see for himself. The look on his face says enough. I'm going to die here today. Man. That is wild. Whose weapon did you pick up that you found on the ground? Like when you got hit, did you have an M4 on you? Do you have a pistol on you? Or are those? It's a it's a great question um, because I had put my primary weapon system, uh, my rifle, my go bag, and then my personal belt fed into my vehicle, and then walked over to this mission brief and comms check. Yeah. So one thing I had on me was my pistol. Wow. A mistake. Um, a mistake. And one I replay, you know, quite often. And, you know, I, I, I like to use this as a, again, as an example is of what not to do. And we tend to learn the hottest lessons by getting things wrong. And here's one that I did get wrong. And you play the what if game all day, man. And believe me, I do. And it, it's a nasty cyclical game that has no end. The what if, the what if, but I didn't have my rifle on me. Um, when I, once I was hit and down and then got to a position where I could engage, I there was a rifle just laying right next to me. It was actually our senior medics who he took around through his calf. So he was down right next to me. And I just so happened, he just happened to drop his rifle like almost right on top of me. So it was literally right there. Picked it up, rolled around. Again, didn't come close to hitting this dude. Um, adrenaline of like is surging and my body is like already going into the early stages of shock with that much blood loss. And then fortunately, you know, one of my teammates was able to come in and, and then smoke that guy. When you pick up that rifle, is he still shooting from that elevated position in the truck? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Still shooting. Yeah, man. And so is he the only threat that's inside the compound that you know of right then? And then are you aware that other fire is coming in at that point? Yeah. He was the only threat inside the compound. Um, at first I thought it was just, you know, it was just him. And then once my teammate Brandon comes in and takes this guy out and then the rest of the guys that were able to shoot all join in, right? I mean, turn this guy into Swiss cheese. But then we all realize that there's this uh, rapid rate of fire that's coming in from all over the place. So it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, wait a minute. And that's when the light kind of clicked on that we're in a full blown ambush. This isn't the lone wolf thing. This yeah. is a coordinated thing. And once the first RPG cracked off, it was like, okay, this could be a, like a real bad day. This could be the kind of thing that, you know, goes down in history as one of the one of the worst instances that we've experienced in Afghanistan. Jeez. I mean, that is almost worst case, you know. Uh, and you don't know if there are any other people inside that compound. You just had one of the guys, one of the, one of your uh, host nation counterparts, uh, open fire on you. There's still others, though. Oh, yeah. And in that's, that group. That's brutal, man. Um, I was obviously not involved in, in that, but my teammates and the other soldiers that were there, they were put to the brink of making some really hard decisions. Yeah. Um, 
and you know, through the investigation and all the sworn statements and all the 15 sixes, none of them eliminated any one of our partner force guys. The the shooter is the one that killed all of the Afghans. And this is from like a dozen different vantage points, but uh, having to talk to these guys, they were right there, right? Like yeah. select a switch on fire two feet in front of, cause they don't know. Yeah. And it's absolute chaos. Who's uh, who's still on our team. And I just can, I can, I've been in similar situations. I know how difficult it is. Not when 12 of my friends are down and dying. So these guys were put to the absolute brink of <clears throat> that decision-making process. Um, fortunately they, they got it right. And they were able to put their energy towards the actual threat that at this point was coming in outside of our outside of our compound. Yeah, geez, did they? God, I wonder, did they? Uh, I mean, you're dealing with something else right now, but uh, I wonder if they were like, "Hey, you, you, and you, keep an eye on this partner force. You, you, and you, we're dealing with a threat outside." Like, what did that? And I mean, obviously, you don't know at the time because you're putting tourniquets on and you're stuffing your leg and you're doing all that. Yep. But um, later, when you got to talk to those guys, what what did they do in the aftermath of that? So, so our partner force that was still, well, I'll use the word loyal to us in that moment, um, fortunately for everybody, very, very quickly dropped their weapons and like basically consolidated themselves mm. uh, into an area. This Again, this is coming from, I've talked to our Terps, I've talked to my team guys, I've actually talked to some of, the, some of those guys themselves. They were like, whoa, 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 like weapons down, hands up, and they like lumped themselves together and just put themselves in an exposed position as a small group. Okay. Whether they had some kind of rehearsed battle drill for that, or if it was just instinctual, but it did make it easier for, you know, two or three of our guys to have all of them in one area mm-hmm. to then assess the, the, how much of a threat, if at all they were. Yeah. And then very quickly, you know, take them, put them into a position of secure. on them and then start to go to work against who's actually fighting against you. Did they have air? Do you guys have air at all come in during this time for the, oh, yeah. on the outside? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We had air on station. Fortunately, our, our CCT, so our air force combat controller, nice. um, those that don't know what that is, they control aircraft as a guy on the ground. Um, he was not wounded, thankfully, because that guy, he went to work and they sent us basically every platform that they had available Stacked them up, you know, at five, 10,000 feet intervals. Spectre gunship was on station. A-10s were doing gun runs. F-16s were dropping J-Dams. Oh, wow. I mean, they just decimated the valley. Yeah. But even with that amount of firepower, it still took almost an hour and a half before the situation on the ground was under control enough where they could land a medevac bird. This was mostly we were fighting was the Taliban. This was their Super Bowl moment against us, wow. right? I mean, we had been kicking their ass for six months. They most of them know our deployment cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So they know we're about getting ready to swap out or leave. Mm-hmm. And this was their chance to kind of push us out. Yeah. So they unloaded the kitchen sink. I mean, then they were they dug in for the long haul. Um, so it did, even though we had that kind of air asset come in, it still took a bit of time before we could get it get it taken care of. Wow. So you're there on the ground in that condition that we just went through. And uh oh man. This is just so wild. Um, shit, how long has it been? How much more time do I have to work before I'm dead? Doesn't matter. Move. I reach into my IFAC, my individual first aid kit, and pull out some combat gauze, rip it open, begin creating a power ball by wrapping it into the shape of a ball to increase its durability and density. 
I release the pressure of the highest tourniquet. This is going to hurt. I ram the power ball into my leg, reaching upward toward the hip. It hurts. I'm feeling for the femoral artery. It needs direct pressure to pinch off the bleeding. The problem is the remaining blood in my system is shunting away from my extremities to protect my vital organs. My hands feel like meat mittens, zero dexterity or fine motor skills in my fingers. The only way I can tell I am brushing past my shattered femur is a searing shockwave it sends through my body. Going unconscious seems inevitable. There it is. I think I feel a pulse inside my leg. No way to be sure, but the clock is ticking. Only a matter of minutes, if that, until I am completely bled out. And only a matter of seconds before I pass out. I ram the power ball down as hard as I can. The pain rips through my body, attempting to eject from my eyeballs. I feed more gauze on top of the power ball, just as our medics taught us. I re-secure the tourniquet on top of it, tighten the strap, twist the windlass, lock it in, and pass out. I wake up what I think is just a few moments later. I wasn't out for long. I look at my leg and determine my work here is done. All right, that's enough sleeping on the job. Get back to work. Damn, bro. That's crazy. You think if you hadn't done, made that power ball and jammed it in there, that you wouldn't have made it? No shot. Yeah. Yeah, no shot. Haven't haven't talked to some of the trauma docs that worked on me, you know, years later. When they when they got me in, they got me to the OR and they they opened me up to fix my femoral. They're like, dude, you nailed your femoral artery with that combat cause. Wow. Like it was it was an absolute bullseye. And for me it was Mostly just, you know, luck or faith or a combination of both. Uh, but yeah, without that, man, you and I aren't having this conversation right now. Man, that is wild. So it's a full hour. Um, and not that you know exact time frame, but when you do that, how long does it take for that bird to get in there after you after you jam this ball up inside your leg, uh, tighten that tourniquet back down? Uh, how long is it till that bird gets there? And then how long until you're at that next level of treatment? Yeah, it ended up being just just under ninety minutes. And uh, once I applied that that internal pressure dressing, I I was in and out of consciousness for the for the remainder of that time, kind of coming and going, coming and going. Yeah. And but I do remember getting loaded on to to the Blackhawk to get flown out. Yeah. And one of my teammates grabs me, the same teammate that was holding the gauze against my face when I was shot, Adam, and he's got me by the face, and he's like nose to nose with me. He just set me down, and he's telling me he loves me, and. You know, he's saying his last goodbyes to me and I know what he's doing and I, I can appreciate what's happening in that moment. But what what distracted me was I noticed the position of the sun and I didn't know exactly how much time had gone by, but I knew mm. that a decent amount of time had gone by. And like I said in the book, like I knew I was dying. As soon as I knew my femoral was cut, I was like, yeah, this is this is where it ends for me. But in that moment on the bird, I'm like, wait a minute. I should definitely already be dead by now. Mm. Definitely already be dead by now, but I'm not. And that was my first resurge of energy. Wow. And it was like, maybe this isn't it. Jeez. Um, maybe this isn't it. So I, I deliberately, man, in that moment, I went straight into combat mode. And even though I couldn't see my enemy, even though I wasn't firing a rifle, I was in a street fight, and now I was getting ready to start throw some punches. On that bird, do they have a full-on contingent of medical people on that bird, or is your, would one of your medics go with you, or what is what is that like? So the, they had medics on the bird. Okay. Um, we only had one that was still in the game. Yeah. Our junior medic, our senior, had been wounded. 
So the medics on the bird took control of me and two of my teammates. So there were three of us on that first lift. And then there was a second lift that came in just minutes behind us yeah. that picked up the next three. So in order of precedence, based on the severity of the injuries, we get we get shipped out. And they they had an option. It was basically speed versus level of care in yeah. terms of where they were going to fly us to. Well, the fastest option was the place that I had originally gone to when I was first wounded, where our <laughs> AOB headquarters was at. Yeah, That was the fastest location. They had what we know is what we call an FST, a forward surgical team, kind of a hodgepodge of medical personnel that are trained to work in a more remote environment outside of a full-blown hospital. Yeah. Bagram was the closest full-blown hospital, but it was a further flight. So they're like speed versus level of care. They went with speed. They pull me and my two teammates off. Second bird comes in behind us. At this point, we have overwhelmed yeah. that FST's capacity. Okay. So then they start diverting all the rest of the flight straight to Bagram. But at this point, we've already overwhelmed what they can do. Well, I'm the most critically wounded. I go straight in. I when I say I was I am out of blood at this point, I mean I'm literally out of blood at this point, which is a wild story just in itself. But I need a transfusion desperately. So blood goes on board. They're working on my femoral. Some time goes by and everything begins to crash and everything plummets. And they're like, okay, we don't know what's going on, but we need to get this guy to Bagram. We need to get him to the hospital now. They are maxed out. Now there's six of us there, and we've overwhelmed their capability. We back in a helicopter, they fly me to Bagram, which is about a nine, 12-minute flight. And it's while I'm airborne to Bagram that they realized that they had just pumped me full of about six units of an incompatible blood type. Oh. I thought they're supposed to check, like, with the little test. Yeah. First. Yeah, they they are, and um, mistakes. You know, a mistake was obviously made, and you know how does that mistake happen? It's a fair question. My team sergeant was on the same lift as me. He also had blood. He also needed blood. We have very similar last names. They both mm. begin with L and A, and they just switched us up. They mm. just gave him my blood. They gave me his blood. Well, fortunately for Owen, I'm O positive, which means I can give blood to anybody. Mm. Well, he's AB negative, which happens to be the most specific blood type we have as humans. So he was fine and me, not so much. Um, but that's ultimately what ended up crashing me. And so they realized what happened because they went to switch out Owen's blood with a fresh bag. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa what, 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 why are we giving him O pause? And they looked to see what they had given me. And they were like, oh, boy, oh boy, we we definitely just just killed Nick. And they called Bagram and they let them know what happened. And they said, there's no way this dude survives the flight to you. It's no way, impossible. So just be prepared to receive his body when he gets there. Well, the medics on that bird, I'm airborne, keep in mind. Yeah. I'm flying. I'm like five minutes out from Bagram. The medics on that bird and the flight crew, they catch wind through radio what, what they're dealing with. And Jack, when I tell you that these medics got creative, I mean, they got creative with ways to treat me. In fact, they did things on me that technically violate army medicine. They pumped me full of enough adrenaline to kill a horse. But you know what, man? Like, They were like, well, why not? And I, yeah. I've had a chance to talk to some of these guys years later, which is amazing to be able to do that. And one of the powers of the internet and social media, mm -hmm. these, guys, these guys were like, dude, we just figured like, what the hell? You know, you're telling me this dude is without question going to die 
why don't I just see what happens? You know, so, I mean, a little bit of risk that they took, a little bit of courage to extend out past beyond what they're trained to do, maybe a little bit of insubordination, but, you know, they are amongst the many in which I owe my life to. And what does that, what does that do when you have the wrong blood type in you and then they pump you full of adrenaline? I mean, you're a big boy, you're strong. They probably looked at you they're like, this thing will kill a horse. Well, this, this, this is a pretty big boy we got here. Wham! You know, like what, what does that do to counteract what was happening with the, the wrong blood? It didn't really counteract. Not counteract the wrong word, but what does it do to it? Like, that yeah, it you? basically just like turbo boosted what was happening. So although it was an absolute mistake and in the medical world, that's considered like an impossible scenario is giving someone the wrong blood type because there's so many protocols in place to prevent it. Mm-hmm. I was so empty of blood that I really just needed any blood to keep me mm, alive. No so even though it was incompatible, the blood did keep me going. It caused a whole host of other problems, you mm. know, minutes later, hours later, but it it did save my life because I just needed any blood. Well, then my liver and kidneys and lungs all began dying because of the toxic blood that was in my body to me. Wow. So- the blood saved me, although because it was incompatible, it was also killing off other parts of my body, but it was also what was keeping me alive. Wow. And then just the massive shot of adrenaline just boosted what little blood I had in me at that point, mm. just to keep me clinging on long enough to get to Bagram. They flushed me with a fresh transfusion, yeah. dialysis, I'm innovated. So machines are keeping me alive as they're hoping all these protocols that they put on board can keep me at least somewhat clinging to life. Wow. And I was as close to death, man, as, as it gets. Like my pulse would just be a flat line for, you know, a good five, six, seven seconds. And then you'd get like a little beep and then nothing. And then, so, I mean, I was basically done and it stayed that way for about three days, about four oh, days. Um, yeah, man. And then I just, you know, that little beep, just kind of started to happen more frequently and, you know, beep, 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 beep. And I just, I slowly came back, bro. Wow. Did they, geez. Uh, you remember hearing that beep? Do you like, how much of this do you remember or how much was told to you? Flashes. Um, actually one of the saddest memories I have of that time was, um, they, they had restrained me because I kept ripping the, the breathing tube out. So I was restrained to the bed. And when you come to, while a machine's breathing for you, it, it can feel like you're suffocating because the, the machine is breathing on a certain rhythm. And when you try to do it yourself, it can offset what the machine's trying to do. It's oh. a horrible, horrible feeling. So I'm tied to this bed and I come to, and I wouldn't be awake for long because, uh, you know, the, the, the nurse or whoever was there would notice I was awake and they just, boom, they'd snow me over, put me right back down. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of, I'd come out of it every now and then. My now wife, um, was deployed at that time and she was there and she had a front row seat to this. And one of the, one of the saddest memories I have, one of the more emotional memories that I have is in that moment in Bagram where I'm kind of coming and going and I look at her and what I'm, I can't talk, I can't speak. My, you know, my mouth is full of tubes and whatnot, but I was trying to through, you know, telekinesis, if that's the right word or telepathy, maybe that's mm-hmm. the right word, telepathy. I was trying to communicate to her to kill me. Um, I wanted to die and, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know my status, nothing. I just, I'm in this vegetated state and I'm, I'm miserable and I don't want to 
I don't want to live. Um, it's funny, man. She, she like knew what I was thinking. Um, and obviously was there to support and, and didn't, didn't pull the plug. Thankfully. So, but it, it was tough. That was a tough, it was a tough five days. Um, and they eventually got me stable enough to be able to fly me to Germany where I could survive a flight to Germany, flew me to Germany. And at this point they had already taken my foot off because it had just, it had been so long since any blood had gotten to it that it was dead. Infection had set in. Mm -hmm. They fly me to Germany. They amputate me up to the knee. Again, now infection was the problem. And then I'm only there a day. I then arrive at Walter Reed uh, where I would spend the next, you know, Wow, man, that is crazy. Um, how did they get the blood that wasn't your blood like out of you and replace it? Like, how do they do a full type flush? Like, does it just on a machine that eventually gets whatever blood was in you, whatever types, out and it's replaced with your actual blood type? Is that how that works? Yeah, it's basically a combination of a, of a, of a transfusion with the correct blood combined with dialysis. So wow. your kidneys are constantly toxic blood mm -hmm. and dialysis is what's keeping your kidneys from one can outpace the other jeez man that is so crazy man you're like the toughest human being that i've ever met um so you get to go to germany you're through germany you're back you're walter reed um when do you start having more memories of like okay more than just flashes yeah when i got to the intensive care unit when i got to the icu at walter reed from there on, um, it's more. I, I have much more pronounced and consistent memories from that time. And I, you know, one of my first, I've only been there a day or two, and the, yeah. the chief ortho surgeon comes in and he says, "Hey, dude, here's the here's the deal. Your leg has been amputated up to your knee at this point. Um, an infection is eating what's left of it, and any one of these infections could kill you. I mean, you've got some like toxic bacteria that's growing inside your body right now." He's like, "My staff." He's like, they're all outside your room right now. They want to take you down the hall into the operating room and they want to amputate your, your leg at the hip. It's called the hip disarticulation. They want to take your leg at the hip up to your pelvis and just eliminate this problem and just get you moving on with life. He's like, but I think I can save more of your leg. It's just going to be a street fight and I need you in this fight with me. And I just met this guy. I'm in the intensive care unit. My mother's there. My father's there. My sister's there. They're all, you know, mopped up mm -hmm. and all the stuff, masks and hairnets. And this dude's telling me that there's an infection in my leg that could kill me. They want to chop my leg off at the hip. He wants to get into a fight. And like, that's really all I processed was a dude <laughs> saying, I want to go get into a fight. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, yeah, doc, let's go do that. He's like, oh man, cool. Let's do it. So wow. that just began, you know, my process of them just incrementally amputating piece by piece higher and higher, cutting out dead tissue, cutting out dead bone, usually three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday was kind of my typical routine. So I'm just in and out of anesthesia. I'm on ketamine, Dilaudid. So I'm like whacked out all over the place, but I still got some pretty decent memories of this. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to about 35 or so surgeries later and leave me with, with what I still have today. So as much as I believe, man, that, you know, anything is possible, the difference between being an above the knee amputee and a hip disarticulation are two wildly different things as is between being a below the knee guy versus. Wow. 
practical reality that exists that I would be able to have gone back, back into combat, you know, back to doing what I do as a hip dysarthic amputee. So again, that doc who I'm still great friends with, he's actually about to retire. He's a colonel about to retire. He's actually over in Germany now. I owe, you know, so much to that guy, not only for keeping me alive, but for giving me, you know, my life back. Jeez. And how long between between that last surgery and uh, when you start going to PT and you describe meeting uh, Kelly in the in the book, you're one of, you're one of your uh, physical therapists? Um, what's uh, how long was that? And what was uh, I talk a little bit about Kelly? Yeah, that was probably she she was introduced to me maybe eight nine weeks after I got to Walter Reed. I was still an inpatient. I was actually still going through surgeries when she okay. came into my life. Um, because we we began doing PT just in my hospital bed okay. before I was able to even be mobile. Um, and then once the surgeries were wrapped up, then I started taking my PT out into the actual training facility at Walter Reed, which is an amazing spot. Mm. Uh, all kinds of stuff. It's just crazy. Uh, began working with her. So her and I began working in kind of the more traditional PT sense of me outside of a hospital room. You know, I'd say maybe 12, 14 weeks or so after I got there. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, then from there, you know, you start working with the prosthetists and they get you fitted for, you know, for your leg. And then you start playing that game. It's just a gradual iterative process, man. You know, you yeah. begin to be able to function just as a one-legged guy, right? So crutches, wheelchair, moving yourself around, learn, getting your balance down. And then they introduce, you know, the robot leg to you. And then you start fumbling around with that and figuring that thing out. Um, yeah. Kelly was amazing. And I put in the book, she's, She's this amazing combination of being extremely kind and warm and gentle and also just like an absolute savage who will be absolutely merciless. <laughs> right, no mercy you. in there. <laughs> no, man. She can bring the pain. <laughs> oh, man. That is so wild. So at this point, uh, when do they say, hey, uh, and they're probably assuming medical retirement. At what point do they start talking to you about that? And are you from the beginning, are you always like, No. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I was made aware while I was still at the hospital that, you know, once you get back to your unit, you will have a med board and you will likely be forced to medically retire. I made it known to everybody uh, that that wasn't going to happen and what my intentions were. My, my decision, Jack, to go back to the team happened while I was in the intensive care unit. It was, mm -hmm. it was that early on wow. that even once I knew most of my leg was gone and they were still cutting more of it off in every other day Jeez. from that point was like, fine, yeah. just get done doing what you need to do. I know you're going to give me a new leg. And then I'm no, I know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I do know what I'm going to do. And I, I made that wildly clear to anybody who wow. asked or if it came up. And so, yeah, my leadership back at Bragg, um, or even just teammates when they tell me about the med board and, you know, the likely outcome of that, I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's not going to happen with me anyway. And we'll figure it out when I get there. And, you know, sure enough, after a year at Walter Reed and, you know, get back to my unit, I made those intentions clear to my chain of command who did their best from looking at me like a crazy person. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the med board was triggered. The army did their best to have me medically retired I uh, I had to dig in. I had to refuse that that result. I had to um, leverage some relationships. I had to get some people with some rank to put their name on a piece of paper. And, and mm -hmm. I tell a lot of you know service members, young ones, 
just about anything in the military. Authority. Fortunate that I was able to do that. Yep. Yeah, I got to get those waivers. Um, man. And while you're waiting then, are you, is this with a modern army combatives program where you're working there? What are you doing while you're waiting and going through this med board process? Yeah. So I was working as a, as a special operations combatives program instructor, which, which is what I asked to do when I got back to my unit. It's a great fit for me. You know, yeah. I grew up doing MMA, boxing, wrestling. I was big into combat sports. So mm-hmm. I asked to be, to become an instructor, combatives instructor. They granted me that, which is important because I needed to have a purpose day to day. I needed yeah. to be giving value to my unit. Yeah. Um, and it was physical and I had a lot of physical work I needed to do. So it was great. So I was working as an instructor and just training like an absolute maniac for what ended up being about eight or nine months until my med board was complete and I was able to be retained and stay in the military. And then it was at that point that I made it clear to my chain of command that I was ready to give it a shot at getting back onto the ODA. And uh, (laughs) it's funny, man, to look back and laugh and have had conversations with some of these senior leaders that are, some of them are still in, you know, they're, but they're generals and, you know, senior enlisted leaders at higher echelon commands all over the place. But I've had a chance to talk to them later and uh, be like, Hey man, like, honestly, when I came into your room that day and I said, Hey man, I'm going, I'm ready to go back to the team. What do you need me to do? What, What were you, what were you thinking? And all of them say the same thing. They said, dude, like you earned the the chance to do it. Mm-hmm. And we owed you the support to pursue it. But not a single one of us thought that we would ever actually have to make the decision on whether or not we were going to do it or not. Mm-hmm. None of us actually thought that this could become real. An above the knee guy going back onto a team had never happened before. So like with anything unprecedented, there's a lot of confusion and questions and a lot of doubt. And that's understandable. And I could, mm. but I, and I could feel that from them in the moment, I bet. but it just, it just didn't matter to me. I was, I was just completely zeroed in yeah. laser focused. I was unwaverable and I was completely unreasonable. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. There's a guy I know, amazing operator who bluffed his way into the Navy and into the SEAL teams without vision in one of his eyes. Um, and then another friend lost his eye, um, while we were at, in the SEAL teams together and he did the same thing, made, went through med board process and stayed in as an operator. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing guy, Adam Brown. Amazing. Um, and then another friend of mine, same thing, a hand, does hand blown off, uh, Tosh Carrington. And, uh, and he, he had came back and did an operational deployment, uh, I think a few, um, with, uh, with, uh, prosthetic, um, man, amazing. but not, I, but. I think you are you still the only person who's gone back to a, uh, a special operations team with uh, that kind of an amputation? Yeah, yeah, still, still the the yeah. first, and at this point, the only. Yeah. Um, which you know what, man, I got a lot of firsts now. You know, like <laughs> once you cross that first barrier, then like you're the first SF amputee to do this or that. Right. Like that's a, it just, it happens because I've stayed in the game for so much longer. And because this happened to me relatively early in my career, it's just important to know, dude, that while I'm certainly proud of that, um, and that, that right there has, has been a source of inspiration to others, which is, which is amazing and humbling and, and an honor 
being the first to do something has not at any point been in my decision making mm. to pursue something. Yeah. This is just who I am. This is what I do. Yeah, I'm stubborn and I'm competitive, but I also have passion, purpose, and a meaning roped into the way I live and the way I serve. That's yeah. why ultimately, you know, I did what I did and I do what I do. Yeah. Man, so you do you do the Detroit Marathon at some point in here. Um, you so you do that uh, at some point, but then you go, go to this med board. Uh, you get the the thumbs up to attempt to to stay in and pass everything you need to pass. But then they said, and when you do that, they send you to a dive team, which means you have to go to dive school. Yeah, with one that leg. Was years later, yeah, that was years later. That was just back in 2020, um, and I was actually so I was the first amputee to go to the Special Forces Warrant Officer course. Okay, cool, awesome milestone. Fine, thank you. I had maybe two weeks left uh, before I was going to graduate the Warrant Officer course, and I get told what team I'm going to. It ends with the number five, <laughs> and in SF, if your team number ends in five, it's a dive team. Yeah, and I'm like. Dude, I haven't even gotten to the now know what the next one's gonna wow. God. Figure this out. <laughs> so yeah, after um taking my new team as the warrant, then it became time to figure out how to do this whole maritime ops thing and this whole subsurface thing and how I'm gonna figure out how to get through dive school. Yeah, no. there's an amazing picture of you in here with uh, uh, a fin. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so how was dive school for you? Brutal. Yeah. Uh, brutal. Yeah, man. I, I was hanging on by a thread for the entire six weeks. It was really hard. Um, my teammates, because I'm on a dive team, I, I immediately get signed to a dive team. So I got a bunch of divers around me. They really are the ones that enabled me to be able to pass. Uh, you know, we collectively figured out how to do all of the required tasks and mm. required a bit of modification because you, you know, man, with, with a lot of dive ops, it's very prescriptive, right? Like left foot. I'm with significant risk. Things yeah. get prescriptive to ensure nothing is missed. Well, some of those sequencing just doesn't apply to me. <laughs> if you say right foot here, well, like yeah. I don't have one of those. So what am I doing while everyone else is putting their right foot into their right fin? Um, so my teammates helped me play around with how to do that. And then the cadre down at Key West, down at dive school, man, those guys were amazing. Yeah. And I of course knew that I would not accept any special treatment and they, I knew that they would not give me any, um, but they were really cool with finding little adjustments that we can make to some of this procedural stuff mm -hmm. so that I can still complete the task to standard and you're down there for a school man it's like we got a time hack we got yeah. things we got to do we can't be like over here effing around with this one-legged guy it just it, it doesn't work yeah. so a lot of credit to my teammates a lot of credit to the instructors down there uh at any moment man it could have gone the other way yeah. so uh, we talk about it in here and uh, the guys you're with talk about it uh, in here. Uh, so before that, though, you go back to Afghanistan and that's where this picture is uh, taken, I think, right here on the cover. Um, yeah, man. So yeah. how many deployments did you do then after after this? As an amputee? Yeah. Uh, five. Wow. Yeah, five. 
I think five, five or six. Jeez. Um, man, what was that first one like going back over, uh, like to the <laughs> same place where you were wounded three times? Um, uh, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I got I got the glorifying moment that I had envisioned uh, for two years of stepping off that bird back in back on that dirt with my hands in the air, you know, saying you should have killed me when you had the chance and now you're going to pay. You know, so I had that moment, but it was extremely short lived, man, because I realized how many tactical gaps I had in my game Mm. that needed to be worked on. So that first trip, 2015, six months in Afghanistan, it was uh, it was nonstop because when we weren't doing ops and we weren't training, I was training on these 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 weaknesses that I was identifying in real time. Yeah. So it was exhausting, just as glorifying as it was and as satisfying as it was. When I got off, off the back end of that, I think I probably slept for a week. Um, and then a really weird challenge was posed in front of me because SOCOM and USASOC and the Army and Third Group all wanted to highlight really what we had done collectively. Mm. And just like anything anything that happens for the first time, people are interested in it. And they send a one-legged guy back to an ODA, back into combat, and nothing bad happens. In fact, the team does very, very well for six months. People want to hear that story. So then I was kind of launched into this spotlight space Mm. that I wanted nothing to do with. And I learned very quickly that when a three-star general asks you to do something like that, (laughs) he's not really asking you anything. Because I tried to decline several times and was told like, (laughs) like actually asking you, like you will be there and you will do this. Yeah. So that became like its own, you know, kind of challenge and transition in itself. And so five deployments, were they all back to Afghanistan or did you zip around to some other places as well? No, I bounced around um, because I also transitioned from third group over to fifth group Mm -hmm. um, in 2017. So I did Afghanistan, I did Somalia, uh, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and I think there's one other spot in there. Jeez. I can't think of, yeah. Man, any time during those deployments where you're like, Maybe this was a bad idea to come back with one leg or, or, or uh, did you just keep compensating and keep adapting and make it happen? I didn't find that moment yeah. where I, I second guessed my, and it was something though, however, that I was constantly cognizant of and yeah. constantly analyzing um, because the idea of, of, of being a risk to my teammates Right. Um, being a liability right. was completely unacceptable. So yeah. that weighed on me quite a bit, pretty much all the time. Yeah. I just took that and used that as as fuel to just to just train like a savage and just get after it and just continue to commit and just outpace and outwork everybody. It was like 18 Bravo math. It's like half the legs <laughs> work at least twice as hot. You know, so I really put my faith in my teammates to be able to maintain that objective look. And at any point, if things looked like I was becoming of that liability, yeah. they would be the absolute first to bring that up. And yeah. I put my trust in them to do so. So incredible, incredible. Uh, one other thing here it's, uh, it says many fundamental principles of biology, psychology, and medicine were disproven this day, the day you were wounded. There is more to the story that I'll share at a later time. The bottom line is, according to these principles, I should be dead. Having survived this experience has provided me with many gifts. The most impactful one 
is my appreciation for life. That's pretty cool. True story, man. It's a gift. It's a gift, brother. Yeah. And uh, it's one of the messages that I, I hope can resonate with more people is the, the, the fact that you're you now and that I'm me now is as close to the definition of a miracle as it gets. Yeah. And it's a ride that can end in the blink of an eye. Um, yeah. yeah. We have an obligation to maximize it, you know? Yeah. No, I love how you put it in here. And I hope everybody gets this. There's also a TED talk you did living by an ethos where you talk about mission first, never accepting defeat and never quitting. Um, so I hope people go and check that out on, on YouTube. And I hope everybody gets this book objective secure and, uh, and your website too. What is that, that website again? Cause it's, it's a little different. It's not just your name. It's machine Nick. Machine Nick. Was that your uh, nickname before? Or did that become a nickname afterward? Where did that come that from? That was an afterwards. <laughs> that was an after thing. Oh man. And then, uh, where did the book, where did you decide that, uh, I'm going to write this book? Was that an army suggestion or is that something you wanted to get down for, for guys? What, what, how did this come about? Yeah. So I told you in 2015, I come back from Afghanistan, one-legged guy, you know, I'm doing interviews and I'm, I'm answering questions. I'm talking to Congress, all this stuff. And I, I just hated <laughs> it. I began slowly and gradually kind of put myself out there a little bit more and more and more social media and whatnot. And the followings are growing and I'm getting asked the same question constantly. How did you do what you did? Yeah. And that was coming from people that were just genuinely curious or people that were struggling with something yeah. and they were looking for some, you know, some guidance or some mentorship. And I'm answering these questions one at a time over and over and over and over and over again. And after doing that for, I don't know, two years, I'm yeah. like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to answer this question in a way that just makes it more efficient to me right. to be able to answer it. It was based purely off efficiency. I created what was like nine pages in a Word document, and that way I could just go copy, paste, send, boom, done. <laughs> and I used it that way for yeah. maybe like two years. Well, 2020 rolls around. I actually just gotten done with dive school. We're in the middle of COVID. Everything's locked down. Gyms are closed. Fight house is closed. It's mm -hmm. a weird time for all of us. We all remember and one of my best buddies, we played football together in college. He hits me up out of the blue and he's like, I think you need to write a book. And I actually hung up on him. I'm like, get out of here, click. And he circles back. He's like, no, really? Um, I think you I think you should. And I'm like, I have no interest in writing a book. I don't like writing. And you know, like, what are you talking about? Again, I got this time and energy on my hand, otherwise would have spent somewhere else. And I gave it some thought and I was thinking about that Word document that I had created. And I said, you know what, man, I kind of have this thing and the feedback and the effects have been obvious and they've been overwhelmingly tremendous. And he's like, I think you figured out what your book is. So mm -hmm. I just, I just committed to the project, you know, and it was around July of 2020 that I made this decision. We were going into Iraq in December. So I just gave myself that window just to see what I could come up with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing right. So I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it well. And I'll tell you, dude, you know this better than I do. Maybe three weeks in, I became obsessed with this. Yeah. And it was crazy for me, this knuckle dragon jock grunt to be waking up at 3 a.m. And I just have to go right. Wow. And even just saying that to you right now is bizarre for me. But I, what I think is cool is even at the age of 30, I don't know, eight, I was, you can you can discover passions that you have that you otherwise, you know, never would have thought were there. Mm -hmm. And writing has turned into one of those for me. So it still very much is the same thing it initially was. You nice. know, it answers the it answers the how and it touches on the why as to me getting back to 
operational status, getting back into combat, but mm-hmm. more significantly getting back into into the lifestyle in which I love. It's amazing. I hope everybody gets it. Objective Secure and checks out that website. I'm going to read one more thing here. Um, but you talk about uh, you know what, your journey, but there's a lot of other things in here too. Uh, inspirational leadership, goal setting. Um, so there's a lot more to this than just a that the story that we talked about a little bit about today. Um, but right here, you write this, this stood out to me. Regardless of the goal that has been met, you cannot remain stuck on it. You do deserve a celebration, absolutely. Pat yourself on the back, enjoy a nice meal, have a drink with your friends, but keep it short. After that, you must locate the next ridgeline because for the successful, satisfaction does not exist. They are constantly looking to improve. They are always looking for that next objective. So that one stood out to me because it's always, I finish the book, on to the next one. People are always asking me about, uh, oh, what are you going to go out and celebrate tonight? And nope, uh, I am right back to work. There's multiple projects. Got this, boom, 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 boom. Uh, so, so that one really, really stood out to me. So I hope everybody gets this. And I did want to ask you about the Peter Ortiz OSS Award that you got mm-hmm. uh, a little while back. Um, and, uh, and who is Peter Ortiz? Peter Ortiz is the most decorated member of the OSS. Uh, so back during World War II and at an event hosted by the OSS Society called the William Donovan Dinner in Washington, D.C., the Ortiz Award is one that is presented to someone that uh, has demonstrated courage, leadership, um, dedication and discipline, service to their country. Another another. Uh, within grown to respect honor to be even mentioned and remotely close to some of these men, some of these warriors that are literally the founding fathers of the organizations that, yeah. you know, that you and I represent. Yeah, no, it's me. I hope everybody looks looks him up, Peter Ortiz. Check out that background. Just type it into the search engine. Some stuff will pop up on him, um, and uh, and that award. Sure to get the book here. But what's next for you? So you have four more years uh, left till you hit your twenty. And are you planning on moving on after that? And if so, what's uh, what's that next ridge line? Yeah, I'm, I'm in an extremely blessed position, brother. You know, a lot of guys struggle with transition. You know, leaving the military, especially after doing a full career. I've already discovered what my next purpose is beyond service in the uniform and actually i get a chance to to do it now and begin grinding towards that now and, and making mistakes and and building a foundation and i i mentioned the love i'm going to continue to do you know i got another three projects i'm kind of slowly hacking away at in addition to um public speaking uh, consulting workshops seminars uh leadership uh engagements so that's the direction things are going in. I get a chance to live that now as a passion project and a side hustle and a nights and weekends thing, but I know I know where it's going. So I'm not too eager to get there. Uh, you know, I, I still love what I do in uniform. I still have a lot to learn in this new position I'm in now. I have an enormous responsibility to my team and those that look around um, and look up to me. And so I have a lot to learn and strength but I'm fortunate to know what's going to happen on the back end. And I get to, I get to work that and live that, you know, now. Man, amazing. Is that the OSS society award behind you or is that uh, something else? What is behind me? No, these are, I'm looking through the camera. Yeah. This is just I, I've seen like a, I've a seen like something that looks like an OSS stiletto there. Remember, uh, no, this is actually something, uh, 
that my wife got. Oh, Actually, nice. She was the distinguished undergraduate from the Sajid Major Academy. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. Nice. Okay. I saw mm-hmm. that. I saw that. Uh, if, if people look it up, OSS Stiletto. Um, I thought that might be that because it's a little blurry, so I can't quite tell, but it looks like it's similar shape there. But it oh, is actually, man. yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Dude, thank you so much for spending this time. I mean, you got a full time job, you got all this stuff going on, uh, serving the country. Thank you for everything that you uh, and your teammates uh, have done for us in this nation and for continuing to be an inspiration to, to me and untold thousands. So, um, best wishes and please reach out if you ever need anything on any front whatsoever. Um, feel free to, to, to hit me up. Um, always here, always standing by. I appreciate it, brother. Hey, man, that time of 2020, um, that's when some, some home really smart turned me on to you. Uh, and I'm glad they did. You see what, you know, a, a war fighter and a gunfighter and someone who's lived the life that you and I love is able to do in addition to that. And, you know, different genres of writing, but writing is writing. And you were an enormous inspiration behind this. So I appreciate that, the impact you've had on me, the work you do, man. Congratulations on all the success. Um, I look forward to seeing you down the line again, brother. So yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we can do it in person sometime soon. So uh, yeah, I'll look forward take to care it. and we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. All right, brother. All take right. care. Take care. Bye. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to thank the men and women in the U.S. military for their important commitment to our country. For more than 90 years, Navy Federal Credit Union has made it their mission to help people in the military community. Navy Federal Credit Union is open to all branches of the military, veterans, and their families. Navy Federal's employees are veterans and military spouses, which makes them a part of the community they serve. They understand their members better than anyone. Members could enjoy earnings and savings of $349 per year, a regular savings rate four times higher than the industry average, an average credit card APR that's 5% lower than the industry average, award-winning 24-7 stateside member service, and 0.25% discounted rate on VA loans. Show your support for our troops with the hashtag military mission. Thanks. And my family thinks about veterans those are currently serving our nation each and every day, giving us these options and opportunities in the private sector. So everyone out there who has served and is serving from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Learn more about how Navy Federal is creating and celebrating the commitment that connects them to their members at NavyFederal.com slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA Dollar value shown represents the results of the 2021 Navy Federal Member Giveback Study. Credit card value claim based on 2021 internal average APR assigned to members compared to advertised industry APR average published on creditcards.com. NFCU reserves the right to change or discontinue promotions and rates at any time without notice. Navy Federal, check them out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300, available in salted caramel, vanilla bomb, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. 
Ready to drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick and shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose for 20% off. This is Jack Carr, and I want to talk to you about Schnee's boots. If you followed me for a while, you know what a big fan I am. This pair right here is the same pair that I've been wearing for over a decade now, and these are the ones that I wear when I want to come out heavier than I went in on a backcountry hunt. So I uh, love these things. They are absolutely awesome. And I have a bunch of different kinds of boots. They're pack boots. Um, and to go check them out at schnees.com, S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com. Schnee's Mountain Boots are handmade in their Italian factory located in the foothills of the Italian Alps. Each boot is made from the absolute highest quality materials available, from the fine leathers to heavy-duty hardware and Vibram outsoles. They only sell direct to you without the middleman markup. This means they can put higher quality materials and craftsmanship in every boot, so you get more boot for your money. They are also all backed by Schnee's industry-leading customer service and support. When you call them, you'll talk to someone right there in Montana that actually wears the boots. So be sure and give them a call. They have a lot of options out there. Find the right boot for you. Definitely check them out. If you head over to Schnee's.com, S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, you can score up to 30% off your new pair of mountain boots. You heard that right. You can save 30% off any pair of regularly priced Schnee's Mountain Boots. Use promo code JACK23, J-A-C-K-2-3. That's Schnee's.com, S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com. JACK23 is the promo code. Enjoy those boots. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, SIG, you guys know how much I love the 226, and right here, this is the 226X5. So this thing right here, solid. Check it out, 6hour.com, X5P226. And speaking of SEAL Team type stuff, Warpaw Wine, my buddy Andrew Arabito, who does half-face blades as well. Uh, Warpaw Wine, they have some white out there now. This is the red, but uh, look at that. That's just an awesome label, so Beto... Awesome job. Check that out. And look at this, Rise Armament. So risearmament.com, and uh, this is their one of their ARs. It's called the Watchman right here. And this thing, whew, this thing is nice. They put some EOTech optics on there, and check that out, Watchman. You can see that right there. But I'm looking forward to getting on the range with this thing. Um, awesome. Thank you guys, risearmament.com. And back to SEAL Team stuff. Mikey Sowers forged right here. Check this out. They got a bunch of t-shirts and this is the Uncommon Grit shirt right here. Uh, but check out Mikey Sowers, follow him and follow Forged as well. Murph Challenge coming up. They, uh, they run that too. And this is kind of cool. So why do I have a phone? Right here, kind of an old school 
phone. Well, it's a gift from Clinton Heidi Smith at Thunder Ranch, and uh, you should definitely go out to Thunder Ranch if you haven't made it out there yet in Southern Oregon. Take any class you possibly can. Take all the classes you possibly can, uh, but check them out, thunderranchinc.com. Sign up and, uh, and go out there. I might see you on the range, but they sent me this because I was at Thunder Ranch training when Jared Shaw called me to reconnect and Jared is a buddy from the SEAL teams who plays Boozer in the Terminal List show. He's also a producer and in this next spinoff series, he's a writer and executive producer and uh, he reconnected and he gave Chris the Terminal List, Chris Pratt, before it was even on shelves. So uh, the book is a series because my dear friend and teammate, Jared Shaw. And I went inside after we connected on the cell. And if you've been to Thunder Ranch, you know it's a little remote. So I went inside to a landline. And it was this phone right here that we talked on. So uh, Clinton Heidi Smith, thank you. Awesome. And finishing up here, merch, officialjackcar.com, upper right-hand corner. Click on shop. This is a Nalgene bottle with the cross tomahawk. So go check that out. And that's it. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover and is available for pre order right now. To find out more about Nick Lavery, go to his website, machinenick.com. That is M A C H I N E N I C K. Dot com and follow him on the social channels from there. His Instagram is nick.machine.lavery and go to his YouTube channel, Nick Machine Lavery. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click in the upper right-hand corner on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, Take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. <laughs>